This is the Open Source Startup Podcast, and I am one of your co-hosts, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures, and I'm joined by Tim, who runs a fund called Essence VC, also dev-focused investor. We're very excited today to have Ian on from Mattermost, which is an open source messaging platform focused on the enterprise. He has been working on this company for quite a few years. They have some awesome customer logos, and they've raised up to a Series B with investors such as YC and Redpoint. So welcome, Ian. Thank you, Robbie. Thanks, Tim. Awesome. Well, I gave a very, very short overview of what Mattermost is. Why don't you kind of tell us what the actual product is? So when we started out, I feel like every video game company has to turn into a messaging company at some point. Like I think it's it's in the terms of like the, the Delaware C incorporation documents. And we started off as a video game company and we kind of got in the messaging space accidentally. We kind of created this open source platform for us to use. And, you know, Slack was really blowing up the time. And we started getting these, these enterprise customers that were sort of like, can we use this? Like, how do we buy this? Like, who are you? We actually had the CIO of the Department of Energy call me like and say, who are you? Why are my labs using you? And like, how do I buy from you? And like, are you certified on this like thing? And like, I don't know what that thing is. And it's like, okay, we'll have to figure this out. Goodbye. And then, and that's how they became a customer. So, you know, the beauty of open source is really just that sort of bottoms up adoption. We started off as sort of like, I think people call this an open source Slack alternative. Some people call this Slack for paranoid people. They really want to do messaging collaboration and have total control of the day. And that kind of is where we started. You know, since then, a lot of, uh, you know, people just keep asking for things. So then they're like, well, we need project management. Can you integrate with this thing, this thing, this thing? And we're like, at the end of it, we had one of the engineers just like, well, let me just build a project manager. And that became this project called Focal Board, which is now 10,000 GitHub stars and growing super fast. And now that's included in Mattermost. So now Mattermost started off as secure messaging. Now we've got project management. We've actually got this incident response product that like a bank asked us to go build. And we're about to release you know, a few other things this year that we're pretty excited about. But what we've kind of become is an open source alternative to collaboration tools, specifically around developer collaboration. So, you know, where we are right now is, hey, all these point solutions people use to make developers more productive in teams, why don't we put that together as a sort of a suite or as a platform? And why don't we let the 4,000 open source contributors that are co-building the product with us help us sort of map out that future? So that's everything from you know, the open source community to some of the largest enterprise in the world. Everyone's working together on this collaboration platform that kind of started off as a secure messaging, sort of open source Slack alternative. Now we've got an open source, call it a Trello, Asana, Notion alternative for project management. We've got an instant response. If you've heard of like Transposit or Fire Hydrant or Rundeck, that's in the product. And yeah, it's like one installer and you get all the things. It's MIT licensed. And a lot of folks are like, why not? Let's let's kind of dive in. And it's so fun to, to co-build the future with all these contributors and customers. So yeah, that's kind of a, a story from Robbie last time we, we kind of met to about now. Fast forward a little bit and I'm just really excited about where we're going. So can you talk maybe why you started Mattermost in the first place? Like where does this whole open source for Slack even came from? Was it like a personal need or like a project you needed to solve for your own problem or, or this is like a big need you saw in the larger market already and you just go for it from the beginning? Yeah, thank you, Tim. That's, that's a great question. So in grad school, I started this video game company and you know, we got funded by Y Combinator. We were trying to do this HTML5 game engine. And you know we just turned into sort of a game studio, ran that for about three or four years. And, and along the way, before Slack, you know, super hot, we were using 
another messaging product and we were, we were all remote. We had like all of our art and analytics and game operations all through this platform of workplace messaging. And the company that we kind of bet on got bought by a bigger company and it started neglecting the product, right? It would crash. We would lose data. Super frustrating. We're like, we can't operate, you know, without, without our messaging platform. And when we tried to leave, they wouldn't let us export our data with 26 gigs of, you know, our art and everything. All of our operations were, were in this platform. We couldn't get it out. And we stopped paying our subscription. They paywalled us from our own information. So what happens when an engineer is unhappy? You know, we go build things. So we built our own sort of messaging platform. And it was sort of like three iterations. And then we were like, okay, we're using it now internally. And we end up open sourcing it. And as we open sourced it, it really just started picking up steam. The market kind of spoke. And the market's like, here's the feature list. We want you to build these things. And and it just it really just spoke to like, hey, there's a business here. The market reaction was so strong, we just decided to shut down the games and and go straight into this business. And it was really great. And we probably waited longer than we should have to decide on a venture business. But it's been it's been great ever since. So uh, really great to work with amazing VCs as as we kind of continued our journey. And that's kind of started. It was, it was a little serendipitous, but the market spoke, and and here we are. And talk to us about why you made it or parts of it open source and why that was important to you and your team? Oh, that's a great question. So how do we go open source? So me and my co-founder, Corey, we're both ex-Microsoft. We actually met at Microsoft. First job out of college, we are the Microsoft office team. I've got about a dozen patents from that. Corey's got about 30. And when we started working on this together, and we were Microsoft under sort of the Steve Ballmer era dynasty. And, uh, I think I was hanging out with Sid, the CEO of, of GetLab, at a Y Combinator event. I was still a video game company. I was showing him this app that we built for messaging. And he's like, oh, you should open source that. I'm like, what does that mean? I, I, had, I don't know what an open source license is. I've never done it. And he's like, well, and explain what open source is. And you know, all we knew was like what Balmer told us. So uh, there's apparently more opinions out there what open source is. And, and it's you know, all learning. And Sid's like, well, here's the thing. If you open source it and it takes off... You can always close source it again because it's just a prototype. You spend a few months on it. But if you open source it and no one cares, you should just stop working on it. And that logic was just, you know, almost like irrefutable. It's like, well, that, that makes sense. And, and we did it. And he also said, look at our GitLab handbook. It has the instructions on like how to create an open core business and just go follow that. Go take our terms of service, go take all our open source thing. Everything's, you know, under that open sourcey licensee thing in the handbook. And we did. And like, we just had a company. I mean, open core... And the great thing about open source is that, you know, it's built to stand on the shoulders of giants. It's built to share and it's built to have reuse. So we basically had, you know, this product that was open source and there was a business model that was pretty much copy and paste. So probably one of the easiest, easier things I've done in my career is, is start an open core company, surprisingly. Yeah, you touch on one of the strongest value props for open source in the early days, which is really getting validation and putting something out there and like potentially getting a lot of signal quickly. What did you actually look for and get from a user perspective that really told you that there was an opportunity there? Was it really just like number of users or did you look for people working at certain companies or engagement and whatever community you were trying to form? Like what was it that you saw that was really compelling? You know, it's it's funny because when we were a games business, we had sort of perfect data, right? It was SaaS, we could, we could measure everything with open source because it happens on GitHub, another platform. We have limited data. We have some, but it's like nowhere near as much as you'd have if you had a SaaS service. So we were kind of looking at the metrics. We weren't really sure how to benchmark. But I think one of the signals was this, like, someone like tweeted at us and they're like, I've never contributed to open source before, but would you be open to taking a 10,000 line pull request that transitions all of your strings in your product 
into a localization framework and then translates your entire product into Spanish. And then, you know, 10,000 line pull request that added very material value coming out of nowhere, you know, just a few months after we were public as a project. I think that was the moment we felt we were onto something. If someone is that passionate about what we're doing, that's the strongest signal. What actually happened was this person was from Chile and was working at a company that was using Mattermost as part of their infrastructure. They were reselling it. I believe they were providing it to their customers, but they had to provide it in Spanish and we were not built for localization. So this person actually built it the right way because you can't just like, you know, replace the strings. You actually need a framework. And every time we'd ship a new build, this person would have to spend like a week rewriting all the stuff to like integrate with our new build. So it was in their best interest to push that innovation upstream to us so they wouldn't have to maintain it anymore. And 10,000 lines a lot. It took, you know, several, we broke it out different PRs. It took time to absorb. And then suddenly, you know, someone's like, can I localize to Portuguese? And then someone else is like, can I stand up a translation server for you to make the localization process faster and easier so we can do more languages? And, you know, just it's sort of one thing after another. Now we're 20 languages maintained by community. So the YC adage is always build something people want. And I think open source, you know, really shows that early and it's a really powerful signal from the market. And so I want to ask you about open source has usually been a lot more popular for infrastructure software where there's not a lot of UI, there's not a lot of UX that has to have end-to-end sort of like look and feel all the same, right? Have all this sort of similar like styles and and it's so hard to really keep that, right? When you have everybody contributing and changing whatever they want, how do you actually consistently give good user experience because your application while having everybody able to contribute or there gotta be some kind of fine line guidance or even like control, right? To make sure, hey, this is way too much (laughs) menu items here. This is way too much whatever, right? To keep the user experience actually great. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, how do you, how do you do the user experience? And I think you're right. Like when you go to the infrastructure folks, it's like, ah, does that button really, you're right, right? Like when it's infrastructure and they're building the user interface, it can be very creative. I think when you're in the application layer and you're building tools in the right sort of context, those things kind of take care of themselves. People contribute. I mean, you look at Bootstrap, you look at React, you look at React Native, and you look at a lot of the frameworks, look at Android, look at Material. There can be frameworks, but you have to be deliberate about it. And I think if you come bottoms up from infrastructure where you don't have a lot of UX, don't have a lot of guidelines, it can kind of go all over the place. And what you want to do at the beginning of a project is really set those standards. Like we had had UX guidelines since the very early days, like where buttons go, you know, margins, all those pieces. And we also had, you know, style guides for the code, right? We had automatic linting in different parts of the product. We had auto format and you want to keep the style both on the code base and the user experience. And if you do that early enough, it'll work, but it's really hard, exactly your point, you can't retrofit it. So the projects that came out in the early days, if they didn't have those guidelines, it's really hard to put the genie back in the bottle. So for me, Mattermost was one of, if not the first open source application that I came across because it was traditionally just more infrastructure type projects. What did you have to do to just kind of let people know that this was now a new thing that you could have as open source? Because it just seemed like a new concept at the time. Applications being open source is not that common. It's, it's a little more common now. Software is software. Even proprietary software, if it's built by folks that don't prioritize the experience quite as much, it, it'll end up a certain way. I mean, look at the ERP industry, right? Like, it's like 
you know, must do this workflow, must click these boxes. And then you have software that's beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's open source or proprietary, you can have that aesthetic. I think software is a reflection of sort of the architects and the founders and who they are. It's the kernel that really starts it. Corey and I come from Microsoft Office, right? Like Microsoft Office has a lot of process. It has a lot of guidelines. It is a lot of infrastructure to make Microsoft Office the way that it is. And it's just muscle memory. Like we just put the guidelines in place. This is how we ship. You know, we always ship, you know, every month it's on a schedule. Like you don't miss a beat. So I think a lot of that, the human beings are reflected in the software and the community in terms of applications, what you're really looking for, for more open source applications is more application developers that choose to go open source rather than what are the properties of open source of application development that I could, you know, yank these, these open source projects towards. You brought a really good point, right? Because software are people. People, we bring our own experiences, and especially when it comes to application, there's a lot of taste, right? From the code styles to how it actually looks and feels and what is important. What did you bring from your game background in Office, right? That made you make these decisions? And what are kind of the... I mean, looking back, is there anything particular that really, okay, we're glad we made that <laughs> early decision to design it this way or make the app show up this way? and relates it back to your like your own experiences? Oh yeah, that's a great question. How we approached Mattermost as an open source project really triangulated to sort of our experiences and who we are. From Microsoft to Microsoft Office, it's about process and it's about guidelines, it's about vision, and it's about being open to feedback and yet having clarity on where we're going, right? Microsoft Office is, we're going this way, you know, hear the feedback and we wanted to react to it and we'll just at the same time, we want to be clear, like this is the direction we're going. And that was, and that's surprising how many open source projects get yanked like kind of sideways and they can't sort of like make a decision and, and go. So I think that was, you know, really come from Microsoft Office and the process, like monthly ship cycles, you know, this is when code complete happens. This is when you get into quality, you know, just muscle memory. I think from the, the games business, it was really around community. So games are like the ones that we did, we were doing MMORTS. So it's, you know, massively multiplayer online real-time strategy. And it was teams of 50 versus 50, you know, just in this big virtual world, just having these massive wars, right? And it was like very collab. And they spent, I think at this point, there's over 70 million hours spent on those games, right? Like, so these people were strategizing and architecting and building relationships. And it was all around a game. Taking that to open source is realizing there's a different type of community here. And the power of community is just massive. They can come together and really have impact and have a sense of belonging and have a sense of, of learning and growth and really understanding that these online communities have so many parallels and you're really just in a different sort of space. I think the effective open source founders that can create a community will have come from a community. They'll have seen it, whether it's MMOs are a great place to build that muscle. Eve is just one of the all-time most amazing communities, amazing and, and breathtaking and a little scary. And there's all these communities sort of around the world. Like here, you've got like, you know, like there's a crypto community, there's online games community, and the open source community is, is another one. They all have different properties. But I think that experience is a big advantage if you can come from a community and, and apply to open source, if you're new to it. So how did you build the early community for Mattermost? Like, what were some of those tactics and strategies? And like, what did you learn? Like, what were some things that were really effective in engaging the community? And what were things that you might have spent time on or hires that you brought on early to build a community that didn't quite pan out? Empathy is the number one. And just having empathy for the people that are want to contribute. And what developers want, what engineers want, engineers love to solve a closed problem. Go to point A and point B and solve it. They're happy. What is devastating is they think they're building something that you're going to accept and you don't accept it. 
and they've spent all this time and it's just like, it's just a terrible jarring experience. And one of the things that was so important to us was never to have that, that experience that happens a lot of old school open source projects where it's like, I'm going to build this thing and we're going to have a talk about it. And people are going to like, you know, give their opinion on my code base. And it's like, ah, so this actually comes to Microsoft office. Like we had a system where we're like very clear. It's like, if you want a feature, if you want to do something, here's a form and there's a section to like upvote it. We used user voice. Yeah, I think it's user voice. You go search for like forms matter most or, or feature idea forum matter most. And we have this forum where you can upvote features, you can comment, you can discuss, you know, our product managers will go and update people on the features. And I think we knocked out like 100 features from that forum pretty quickly. And what happens is you go to the forum and you discuss it there. Don't do a pull request, share your ideas, upvote. That's where you have that conversation. When we find features that make the most sense, we'll create tickets for them, right? So it's like, hey, help wanted. Here's the thing. Here's a very clear thing. We will accept your pull request if you build this thing. And that's our system. You, you have to have an approved sort of ticket to make a pull request. And we do that because we never want to like reject someone for the wrong reason, right? Like, hey, maybe the code wasn't perfect. Great, you have another try. But what we don't want to do is have people spend an inordinate amount of time, try to put something in and not get it in. Now, there are exceptions like bug fixes and small stuff here and there. And then people just know that, well, if you didn't get a help wanted ticket, we may or may not accept that. That's at your own risk. But we really wanted a system where people could win, right? People can get what they want. They want to learn, they want to contribute, they want to have impact. And that was important to us. So I think that was when we think about community, it's about giving people what they want, whether it's a contribution or to file the feature request the right way or to file a bug the right way. And the other thing is be quick, right? Like no one wants to have something hang out for like days or weeks or months, like be quick. And I think in the early days, that speaks the world. It means people can contribute there's quick response and they get that, you know, zap of, of success. And it just, it just happens over and over. When you get bigger, it's harder to be that quick because there's so much complexity. Uh, but I think the early days, that's the best feeling in the world. So I'm a longtime open source maintainer myself too. I, I worked on Apache stuff and of course, you know, CNCF projects. And, you know, you brought up the game MMO community. And now in my head, I'm thinking about like how this all relates. I was just wondering for your contributor community? Because in Abachi world or even Kubernetes, right, there's the idea of how do we actually give people autonomous where they can actually come up with their own features or become maintainers or committers, right? I can actually commit code inside without having to have everybody approve, right? And you sort of create these like subsystems of, of universe, right? I feel like MMO has these guilds or how all these sort of like interesting societies, right? Did you try to create something like that for Mattermost? Where like, is it just one level everybody contributes and there's always a set amount of people who are be main maintainers? Or did you even try to bring some of the elements where everybody feel like they're much more involved in this project? Yeah, that, that's a great question. It's like a time-honored app versus kernel debate, I think, in software. And the kernel is something that we have to really maintain ourselves. And we do have people that contribute, but like we have to maintain the kernel for security, all those different pieces. Everything else is a plugin, right? It's, it's sort of app layer. Even Focal Board, right, which is 10,000 GitHub stars, it's open source, but it's a plugin to the architecture. And there's no limits to who can make a plugin. So if you search GitHub today, there's 2,500 repositories that are, you know, linking to Mattermost. And that has a ton of creativity. So it's really about clarity. So it's like, okay, here's the kernel. Here's where it's going. And you can fork it if you want, but like, this is, this is the kernel. And people can have all the creativity and freedom they want. And we're just blown away by the projects. There's just one, Matterhorn. It's like an ASCII art terminal interface to Mattermost that like replicates our UI. And it's like written in Haskell. 
it's just it's just breathtaking what people can do. And and yeah, they have all the freedom in the world. And you know, and, and you can you actually do that. You actually replace the actual user interface of Mattermost. That's what we you know we talk about kernel. It's a you know that's the server back end, but you can replace the whole front end. You can create your own mobile apps. You can create your own project management, instant response, all these things that we've created all through the plugin architecture. So I want to talk a bit about Mattermost customers. And it really does seem like the open source piece lends itself to security. And you lean into that messaging a lot. So it does seem like it's more enterprise customers who want that control. But would just love to understand like who our value prop speaks to and how open source plays into that. Yeah, I think security is, it's really about control. And a lot of our customers are in mission critical workflows. Like we are the collaboration platform for some of the most important organizations in the world. And you know, they're not they're not okay with downtime, right? They're not okay that like, oh, we've got this status page and it's got a cute shrug emoji and like, you know, sorry you guys are down, tweeting about it. Like that's that's not okay for our use cases. And where it happens is, yeah, people care. It's not just security, but it's control and it's trust. In, a, in like an afternoon, you can have Mattermost as an open source project walk through an enterprise. You can run us through all the open source scanners. Every, almost every software division in every company, every enterprise uses open source. And the best ones, they have code scanning tools and you know a lot of sophisticated information to check open source software, to vet it, to check security, all those pieces. Because of that, we can get through into enterprises very quickly because they're built to consume open source. And we can get through legal, right? Legal, if you're using a SaaS product, it's like, whoa, good luck, you know, data privacy, you know, control, terms of service, none. MIT license, boom, we're in. So like in a day, you can have people trying out Mattermost and evaluating the product. And from there, in a complete secure environment they've got, they can go and convert that to the commercial version, the enterprise version, through a license key purchase that unlocks a bunch of the, the advanced features. So what is high trust? High trust is really understanding, I've seen every line of source code. And we have a responsible disclosure policy where every time there's you know there's an issue, we release a patch, all that is, is in there. And the last piece is the reputation of the security organizations that use Mattermost, right? They all talk and they've all run us through different scanners and whatever there is to find, it's been kind of shared and reported and fixed. So it's really that market position that we're in in terms of security and trust. And it's from that market position that we're releasing the new generation of products, right? So open source will turn into Asana, Trello, and, and Notion in a light use cases of Jira, actually, with Focal Board. So you get, you've already vetted it, and now we're going to deliver project management into that platform. And we're going to deliver incident response into that platform. We're going to deliver a couple of new cool things this year. And that's why security is so important, because it kind of comes in pre-vetted. And you can watch, you, know, you have complete history of the source code. You can see everything, you know, lots of eyes on it. And I think that's an advantage to a lot of other open source companies out there is you have this sort of automatic. So as long as you have this security posture, right, as long as you stand behind it, you have the better architecture for it. And so since you have a lot of plugins from the community, I wonder, do you also try to vet the plugins that all your customers will be using? Because, you know, I start to use Mattermost and now I have, I see a hundred, a thousand of them. I may not know, is it coming from you or coming from whoever that may be is there a process for that? Or do you let the customers know, okay, this is Mattermost, so we've done our own process, but do your own discretion for everything else? Yeah, absolutely. Just like open source. So we have our plugins, which are first party, and you can see that in our marketplace. And then the ones that aren't, mar and we control our marketplace. So like it has to be from Mattermost for us to label it Mattermost in the marketplace. That's, so, you know, WordPress does the similar things and, you know, that is, that's super important. Yes, there's a lot of creativity in those 2,500, you know, open source projects that are touching Mattermost, but it's also the responsibility of any developers, you know, using open source to run it through the processes. So maybe talk more about enterprise edition and 
I guess what's not so obvious is, is that also closed source? Or is actually all your features are completely open source, but you just have more support for it? Like just tell me about what is the division between enterprise and free? Yeah, enterprise is an add-on. So think about it as we take the open source code base and it's like a library. So the enterprise edition, and anyone and other people can build the enterprise edition, right? Like they don't have to be like us. They can build their own sort of version that would like uses the open source projects as a library. And then what happens on top of that is there's additional features for features like e-discovery and certain uh, scale features. If you're talking about over a thousand users, there's different you know pieces that we add in. It is proprietary. There are parts that are source available, but it, it's a very standard commercial approach. So the value prop for Mattermost for a lot of organizations that can't adopt something like Slack, like a SaaS service, it, it has a ton of value. But also for any developer-centric organization, it also is super valuable too. And I remember way back, like when we were talking last time, Uber was a really big customer and user and huge proponent of using Mattermost. So from a positioning and customer value perspective, have you seen a lot of that developer demand where they just wanted to be able to customize and like didn't want to use just off-the-shelf SaaS service for, for Mattermost or for messaging in general? Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of customization that does happen. What typically happens is the developers adopt us first and the developers realize, well, we're going to build this app for internal users. We might as well use the Mattermost platform for workflow. So probably the, the most public one that we can talk about is the U.S. Air Force. So Air Mobility Command deploys Mattermost to all of its air crews. So the workflow to coordinate the flight plans happens through Mattermost. I think we've, we've even won a couple of awards for it that are, that are public. So you've got 20,000 air crews that use this workflow that the developers have built as this mission critical process within their organizations. And when it, it needs to kind of happen globally, all around the world in the most difficult conditions and very complex requirements, then having control down to the source code is a necessity. And that's a solution in the market that we're so excited to solve for those customers. And so looking at your positioning also from what comes to like, what is the solutions that you offer? What jumps out to me most, because it's definitely very tempting to just compare you with Slack, right? Mattermost and stuff besides open source and, and all of that. Actually, what stands out is Mattermost actually, the solutions, the use cases are entirely developer oriented, right? DevOps, collaboration, incident resolution. These are, there's almost developer or operations, like very technical audience oriented where Slack is saying, I'm doing IT finance, you know, sales. I'm sure all everybody uses messaging, but somehow your solutions are actually much more oriented toward technical audiences. And I just curious why you pick that as the core people want to go for understanding how to leverage Mattermost the most. Yeah, it's really just listening to the market. We come in through source go to market. So people, developers adopt us. They might use us in teams of call it, you know, one dozen, two dozen people. They love it. One day they open up their admin console, it's like 50 to 100 people. Like, where did these people come from? There are other developers that have kind of glommed on. They're using different deployments. And, you know, the developers are like, okay, well, IT, like, go go run this. It's a, it's a multi-team service. You should kind of run this. And then it kind of expands from there. So that's how we kind of enter the enterprise as a go-to-market. And as you go that direction, all those use cases that you see are the use cases that our end users create. And you know when they go like, well, how come we're spending so much money on Mattermost? It's like, here's we run our CICD on it. We run incident response on it. And all those developer-centric workflows are really part and parcel of who Mattermost is. Even internally, like once, like our community, our customers built these products, right? They, they said like, this is how we want to do instant response. And we're like, that's kind of cool. 
and we created as a plugin, we drafted it, and now we're using instant response internally. We cannot go back, right? It is just such a critical use case. It's bananas to say like, oh, there's a SEV1 customer issue, right? Or there's this and there's that. Instant channel gets created. The right people on call are added to the channel. There's a checklist of exactly what you want to do. There's automation that starts firing off. At the end, there's a root cause analysis that's required, and those are retrospective. And all this goes in a dashboard. So, like, I do not, like, I cannot remember what we were doing, like, before this, right? To not have a dashboard of all your escalations, really get a, a sense of what your service quality, what your energy, what your engineering efficiency is, because it just becomes, like, something you have to have. So that, I think, is the power of our category that we're in, right? Text-based workflow. And text-based workflow is so powerfully used in the development community. That's, it's a CLI. And all the things that are coming off of it, such as, you know, just executive view of our incident response, of our engineering utilization, it's just going to be like the minimum that any organization has to be functional. I mean, if you didn't understand how your engineers were doing, like, why did we miss the roadmap? Like, why was this date pushed? We can see the utilization that's taking out of your engineering organization. You can see the customer impacts, right? You can map that back. Zendesk can't tell you that stuff, right? Like, there's got to be integration with your collaboration platform for you to understand all these things. And, you know, we see Microsoft Teams. We see Slack at Salesforce. They're doing the same thing. Like, Benioff is saying, hey, we're going to redesign all of Salesforce to be Slack first. That's great. What if you're a competitor to Salesforce products? What if you're in business intelligence? Well, if you integrate with Slack, you're going to give your best use cases and you're going to compete against Tableau on their platform and Tableau will be the default. Like, are you going to integrate your entire business into your competitor's user interface? So as a category, we see a lot of opportunity to build an ecosystem that is integrating these really powerful workflows in an open source environment, which is a lot of what the industry wants. So we've talked a lot about the benefits of building an open source and how you, it can extend your reach, you can test out your value prop, but what's been hard about building an open source? I think people aren't used to it. Like when, when you hire people, right? And you hire like an executive, right? They kind of get it, like you get the right ones, but some of them are kind of like, wait, this is like proprietary company strategic information. Like how are you telling people our roadmap? It's like, it's open source. Like you cannot build anything like without being open, right? Like, so there's no like surprise reveal. There's no more conference where you say like one more thing, right? There are no like real sort of secrets in open source. So your roadmap is transparent. Your progress is transparent. The features you're going to build or not build, your customer will know before your salespeople do in some times if they're monitoring the code base. Like the changes will happen almost before we can communicate them out. So for an organization that is comfortable with that, it's super powerful. And we've learned, like, hire people from open source organizations, open source companies, and they really get it. What happens is when you have people that aren't used to that level of transparency, it can be um, a cultural adjustment that needs to happen. You definitely brought a lot of good points about the open source culture and the nature of things. And also the great example about Slack being more of like a closed platform. Now because it's actually a lot more integrated with particular people. I'm just curious, how do you see Mattermost transition from an app? Because the more you talk about plugins and more people are able to actually see a deeper solutions and a deeper experiences than whatever just Slack plugins are offering, right? You're talking about CICD and all the things are, are more than just a few lines of text, right? Now you can actually have the deeper plugins and stuff like that. It sounds more and more like an operating system from a developer point of view. Like I can build on top of Mattermost in a more deeper way than I can with other platforms. I don't know, is that kind of the positioning you're putting 
Mattermost now? And do you see more and more companies betting on Mattermost as like the base layer of where you want the products to be attached to? Absolutely. It's a natural property of any open source platform to be naturally more extensible than everyone else. And we let add on top of that, we have plugins, we have webhooks that are compatible with Slack. So anything that's built for the Slack ecosystem around webhooks like automatically works for Mattermost. And we have a plugin architecture on top of that. And it's actually multiple generations that we're offering out there. I mean, we talked about the modularity. You can actually replace the Mattermost user interface with a complete replacement, like, you know, written in Haskell, ASCII art. You can do that and you can transform things even down to the source code. If you want to change the labels in Mattermost, we already have localization. You actually have access to that immediately. So there's a framework for innovation upstream and downstream. And to your point about operating systems, the category we think of is platforms. What a platform is, is, you know, you've got two-party system. You've got end users at the top, and you've got integrations in the bottom. And you can create sort of geometrically more value. And absolutely, as a platform, our category is a natural platform category. It's about text-based workflow that integrates with applications, will integrate with teams, will integrate with AI in a very sort of straightforward manner. And it is the next operating system. It is the user interface. People spend more time on text-based workflow and communication than any other medium. And the challenge that a lot of the software industry has these days is that, you know, there's two, you know, big tech companies that control the platforms, control the user interface for business and future. We think of ourselves as that third category. So how do you charge your enterprise additions? Because, you know, Slack is a per user base for the most part, right? Of course, you can have even more tiers, but for the most, everybody knows you have five users, you pay five licenses. Mattermost, given it's open source and you have all these plugins, you can change whatever you can. It kind of suggests you're actually telling people to host it themselves, right? Because I can make my modifications, I assume. Do you charge per user too? But I guess it will be very hard to do that if you're a self-hosted option. We do. We actually do it the same way that GitLab does. So it's an annual subscription. That makes it easier. So what happens is there's an annual subscription. And what happens is you get the free users. You get to like, you know, 50, 100, 250 users. And at that point, you need the user management features. You might need e-discovery. You might need, you know, the high availability as you forecast your growth. And you'll make a purchase at that many. And the license key will fit for that many users. And then you go deploy over the year. And at the end of the year, if you're over a certain limit, then you'll do a quarterly true forward. So at the quarterly, you're sort of obligated to tell us if you're over the, your, your license count, and then we do a true forward, you pay prorated, and then you renew it at the end. So it's a very similar license to, to GetLab. And we actually have a cloud product now that just does you know very simpler, very simple you know per user based pricing. It's per user based pricing on, on both products. Like the SKUs are the same, the price is the same, and you can have it in cloud or self managed, and it just per user with a true forward. So last question that we wanted to touch on. What are some of your biggest learnings? Some things that you wish someone had told you early on before you got started as an open source, new open source founder? It's really important to have a vision for the go-to-market early. Because when you have product-led growth, it's amazing. And that growth, like we kind of built it like a free-to-play game, right? It's like, hey, you get this stuff for free. You really love it. And then like, hey, there's a another chapter over here that goes to like a large deployment. And that sort of journey was really powerful and it accelerated our company. What we didn't have is a strong opinion in the early days about how the go-to-market, how our marketing and sales and customer-facing organizations would interface with that. The problem with that is we tried some models in the go-to-market that were the wrong generation of go-to-market for our, our chapter. Our chapters, hey, we're product-led growth. We're sort of a freemium journey. And there's other open source projects that are going to be a little bit more sort of like pops down, sale, like big vision, big deployment. And I think that's one of the things that we didn't have dialed in in the early days. And that put us down. 
And it took a little while to, to figure out and we got it now, but I would encourage founders today to be really dialed in on their go-to-market vision. And if they're going to be freemium, go freemium. If they're going to be enterprise, go enterprise, but don't put the wrong configuration in. I guess maybe just last double click on just that point. What makes it so difficult to actually able to do it, to go to market right in the beginning? Because I think most people, especially founders now, we all heard of PLG, we all heard of freemium, all heard of enterprise, and especially new founders just assume, oh, it's gonna, everybody just download it, they'll just pay for it, maybe pay a credit card. They make it feel like it's really simple to figure out. But of course, when we talk to founders, go to market is actually one of the hardest <laughs> to actually figure out. And so I feel like there's actually a lot of nuances. What is actually the hardest part during that period to actually hone down, go to market? Is it just lack of never done this before, never know one to talk to, or was there sort of like temptation or noises coming from different needs and just hard to like choose? I think the mistake that is really easy to fall into is too much extrapolation from history. So what can trip people up is, hey, this worked in the past, let's apply it here. And I believe a go to market needs to be layered. So for PLG, you're gonna get a natural layer of inbound, and, and as you do marketing and PR and things like that, that will accelerate. But especially if it's self-managed, you don't have telemetry, you cannot accelerate that organic inbound with digital marketing. You can do it with PR some, getting more awareness, but you can't really accelerate with digital marketing because you don't have the telemetry to figure out what campaigns are working or not. Then you have another layer, which is going to be like, you get a cloud layer, right? So that you can do digital marketing, right? But then the journey and the conversion is going to be different than that organic layer. So what you have to understand is there's different, layers that will add together to give you your growth. And you have to treat those layers in the right way. And what you don't want to do is like blend and mix, right? It's like, let me take half of worked over here and half of what worked. It won't, it's not going to work, right? Because they're very specific journeys. So I think that's a non-obvious thing is that like, you can't put all your go-to-market investments in like one channel. Another example is like, if you have an SMB business, you have an enterprise business, that doesn't mean like you blend the two and go after mid-market, right? It means you have to run those two businesses like like different segments and different layers. Awesome. Well, Ian, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Robbie, Tim, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.